Poya. This is Robbie. Welcome to Uncharted and Eclectic. And thanks for joining us again. Poya here. This week's episode is brought to you by Oracle NetSuite. Oracle NetSuite, I think, solves a really important problem that a lot of startups, business owners, executives face, which is how do you get the information that you need instantly all in one place? Before we upgraded to Oracle NetSuite at my last startup, it used to take us a lot of time to pull the information reports that we needed for our quarterly investment meeting or the report that we wanted to send to both internal employees as well as stakeholders and shareholders at the end of the month. Upgrade to Oracle NetSuite today so you can get the visibility and control you need over your financials, HR, inventory, and everything you need in one place that you can access instantly. Let NetSuite show you how they'll benefit your business with a free product tour at netsuite.com slash scale. Schedule your free product tour right now at netsuite.com slash scale. That is netsuite.com slash scale. All right, welcome back to another episode of Uncharted and Eclectic. We have a really exciting guest today, um, one of my personal favorite marketers that I've ever had the pleasure to work with, and, and Poya can probably echo this as well, Loretta Jones. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Um, Loretta, our, the way we like to start this is learning a little bit about your background, where you grew up, um, what your family was like, siblings, um, areas of the world, and I think you've got a particularly interesting growing up story. Um, would love to kind of like hear a little bit about where you were born, some of the places you lived growing up, and kind of how you made your way into the wonderful world of marketing here in Silicon Valley. Sure. So I was born in India. Uh, my father was in the diplomatic service. And so I grew up in Nigeria and Spain and Kenya and uh, came to live in the U.S. Uh, when I was 15. I'm from a family of seven girls. Um, so a lot of estrogen in my family for sure. Um, but I think the good, the good news of that is that my mother really always had an opinion and was always encouraging us to be independent and make our way in the world. In fact, one of my favorite stories about my mother is that uh, one of my older sisters was, uh, was trying to get a, go to one of this guy, this boy to ask her to the prom. And she kept saying, he's not asking me, he's not asking me. And finally, my mother's just like, why don't you ask him? Um, you know, so, so that's the type of, that's the type of mother she was. She's just like, look, if you want something, you have to ask for it. Um, so that's kind of the environment that I grew up in. And, and on the, the flip side, that was really good on the flip side, because I'm the youngest of seven girls, it was almost obvi obviously having like six, six mothers. So that was a little bit of a pain that I thought growing up, um, cause everybody had an opinion, but I think it, it, uh, helped me, uh, in marketing because marketing is a very kind of public, um, public, um, area and everybody comments on marketing. So I'm kind of used to getting a lot of comments. Um, anyway, fast forward, I came here when I was about 15. I went to college. I studied psychology in college. Um, oftentimes, I think that that's the best degree to have in tech and in Silicon Valley with all the different personalities. Um, and then I started my career in tech in product support and then migrated to product management, product marketing, demand gen, et cetera. Um, so I think it's helped me in my career that I've had experience in kind of most major areas of marketing just kind of through the journey there. Awesome, so seven, uh, seven girls, That's, uh, that must have been a, uh... That must have been a like competitive environment to grow up in for you, as far as like getting attention from your your parents. Although that maybe that wasn't maybe that wasn't the, your personality or end goal. Tell me about that. Like, uh, you know, if there, there's sort of
sort of, you know, when you meet somebody who's like an only child, you, you get one kind of experience with that person. When you meet somebody who's got a ton of siblings, like that person just got a little bit of their parents' attention. Tell me about like growing up with that many siblings and your relationship with your siblings. Like, how do you think that kind of shaped you as a person? Well, so it's interesting because uh, there's a 20 year span between all seven of us. So oftentimes I say to my mother, I was like, oh my God, I cannot believe that you were pregnant for like 20 years of your life. Um, so in many ways I had both experiences because the, my sister that is closest to me in age is seven years uh, older. Um, so in many ways I had, I was the only child, but then in other ways, you know, I had, like I said, I had all these six, I had seven mothers. I had my mother and uh, my older sisters that were always trying to tell me what to do. Um, so we did, I didn't really feel like I had to kind of compete with them because um, everybody was at a different age. And so I think that was another thing that was beneficial for me as the youngest that I could just kind of see uh, kind of a little bit what my future was going to be like based on kind of where they were and what they were doing at the time. You know, to be perfectly honest, when I was born, since there's a 20 year span, my oldest sister was in college, right? She had just started college. Um, so yeah, so I, it was beneficial in many ways. Um, and often people, a lot of people are like, oh my God, your poor father. And I was like, are you kidding me? He was doted on all the time because he had seven girls that just adored him. So I think that actually, if he had had a son, he might've felt a little bit of competition because then the girls might've might have adored their brother as much as they adored their father. Yeah, absolutely. Um, th this story really resonates for, for a couple of reasons. One, on my dad's side, there's seven siblings. On my mom's side, there's 11 siblings. So like- wow. I have aunts and uncles like yeah. traditional Iranian family um, but the second reason it resonates when we were talking about this I grew up living in like four or five different places um, after we escaped Iran Turkey Dubai parts of Europe until we moved here when I was 13 um, and sometimes I think that like global citizenship whatever you want to call it like has a really good impact because if you meet somebody from Nigeria or Spain, you're like, oh, I used to live there. And like you connect with them. But beyond that, I think there are some other um, positives uh, that you have uh, or understandings that you really don't realize until like you start reflecting on it. How do you think like that global citizenship has influenced you uh, as a marketer or as a in general, I guess? Um, I think it's just made me kind of more aware of what's happening in the world. You know, when I first came to the to the U.S. and I came to school uh, when I was 15, I remember that a lot of people first said to me, wow, you speak English so well. You know, you lived in Kenya and you speak English so well. And I'm like, like what? Like, of course I speak English well. I mean, you know, I went to a British school in English in Kenya. I, I had actually a little bit of a British accent. Um, so it was, it was just kind of an eye opener for me at that time that the people that in my school just didn't realize kind of what, you know, what Kenya was like. I think they had, you know, the kind of the Hollywood version of what Kenya was like, Tarzan and apes and that kind of stuff. So I think it just gives you a little bit of a sense of, you know, there's different cultures out there. People do things differently. Um, and that's okay. It doesn't have to, you know, not everybody has to do things the same way. Yeah, hundred percent. It's funny you bring up the Disney uh, reference because everybody thought for some reason Iran was part of uh, Aladdin. So it's it's funny how <laughs> Americans sometimes go straight to Disney references. Um, I'm, I'm changing gears to another personal. Uh, I every time we connect or interact in a work setting, I always hear your dogs barking in the background, and I know you have this uh, admiration for animals. Um, why, where does that come from? And more importantly, how do you think that's helped you in the business marketing world? 
Um, so I think part of um, my love for animals is probably just where I grew up, right? Growing up in, in Nigeria, primarily in Kenya, not Spain so much. You're literally around animals all the time. Like there used to be this troop of wild monkeys that would come into our yard and I would always want to go out and feed them a banana. And my mother would be like, no, don't do that. You're going to get bitten and then you're going to get rabies, you know, but I would do that anyway. Or, you know, we would go on safari, literally like the, the game park was half an hour from our house. So I almost felt like um, you know, they were like my animals, right? I had, I kind of grew up with a, a sense of, oh, these are like, there's an elephant over there. That's great. There's a giraffe, right? Um, and so I think that combined with the fact that my mother actually used to raise um, dogs. We always had dogs around the house. At some one point, we almost had like six dogs around the house. And, you know, whenever one of our dogs had litters, um, we, we, there was always dogs and puppies. Um, so I think those two things kind of um, gave me my love of animals. But I've always kind of just liked the idea of as a human being able to have a relationship with kind of a sentient being that doesn't speak. Um, you know, it's just kind of interesting to kind of figure out what are they thinking about? What are they not thinking about? Like, why are they looking at you that way? That kind of thing. Um, so from a professional perspective, what I used to do when I was younger, um, when I was doing interviews for people that were going to work for me or people that were going to work in the company, I would always ask them, hey, what kind of animal would you like to uh, like to be and why. Um, and because I always thought it was interesting to kind of uh, hear what they admired in the animal that they wanted to be. Um, you know, somebody would say like a tiger and I'd be like, why? And they'd be like, oh, because they're ferocious or, you know, they're aggressive, that type of thing. And so I thought that it kind of gave me an insight into their personality. And so interestingly enough, some of my coworkers started to ask the same question. And then HR found out that we were asking this question and basically kind of put the kibosh on it and said we couldn't ask it anymore. Um, but uh, but yeah, so, so that's kind of how I have taken that, uh, that my love for animals and just kind of figured out, or not figured out, but tried to kind of get a sense of someone's personality by trying to figure out what type of animal they are. Um, and as I mentioned, I'm a big fan of dogs, a big fan of adopting dogs. Here's a quick shameless plug. Um, every year, about 2 million dogs are euthanized in the US. So if you're thinking about it, getting a dog, please adopt, please adopt, please adopt. That's awesome. Yeah, we had a guest um, a couple weeks ago, Bridget, um, from, from Dialpad, and she, uh, she spent a lot of time working with all kinds of animals from dolphins and like kind of marine biology focus to to uh, dogs like you were just mentioning and she actually gave us um, uh, an opportunity to donate to one of her favorite um, her favorite institutions that that helps out kind of like animals in danger are, are there any Loretta that that you'd like to call out like for listeners that if they're kind of coming around to the holidays and thinking about making a donation or something like that places you volunteered or or keep an eye on or participate on Oh yeah, um, one of the local um, foster groups that I work with is called Copper's Dream, um, and mm -hmm. I foster foster dogs from them all the time. Um, so yeah, it's it's, cost, it's coppersdream.org, C-O-P-P-E-R-S, dream.org. So so either Robbie and I, if you help us uh, awesome. get get first place, Loretta, either Robbie and I or jo both of us, Robbie, will donate again to uh, Copper's Dream. We will nice. do that. Awesome. Let's do it. Poya's favorite thing to do is volunteer my money to, to donate, but this is a good cause and we absolutely should. So I'm, I'm on board. We'll put the, um, we'll put the link to Copper's Dream in the, in the show notes and in the comments uh, when we put this live, but, but thanks for, thanks for calling that out, Loretta. That's, um, that's really cool um, how much you've, you've kind of focused there. And I, I actually love that interview question and, and may borrow it for myself. Uh, sure. Because I think that's a good, uh, good tell-all. <laughs> so, um, so shifting, shifting gears a little bit, I, you know, I think one, one opportunity that I was really excited 
learned about when we scheduled this interview was getting to learn firsthand from somebody who's been like marketer number one, head of marketing at multiple early stage startups. Um, there's a lot of, uh, as somebody who's been on the other side of the coin in sales, I think one of the challenges early on is, as you know, is like, you know, there's a very, there's no brand in the early days. Nobody knows who you are. How do you, and, and, and I think climbing out of that, um, that hole, I don't know if it's the hole is the right word, but climbing out of that um, into like a bit into a bigger brand is a challenge. I'd love for you as somebody who's been through that journey and had a lot of success on that journey multiple times to maybe just like share your thoughts on kind of being an early stage marketer and, and there's a million things you can focus on. What are the ones that you really prioritize when you come in on day one with an early stage startup? Oh, sure. Yeah, you're right. I have been the, been the first marketer at a bunch of bunch of different startups. Um, so I think ultimately, there's a lot of questions. And some of these questions are taken care of in the interview process. But some of them, you know, you need you need to kind of talk to some of the uh, get in depth information in front of the <clears throat> excuse me, the company's leadership. But, you know, what is the vision of the company? What are the broader company KPIs? What is the sales model? What's the market fit? Um, you know, who's the buyer and what's the messaging for that buyer? I mean, that's kind of that's kind of table stakes. And the reason why I mentioned that it's kind of table stakes is because when you're the first marketer there, you have to kind of set the foundation um, of what marketing is going to be. In many cases, when I'm the first marketer there, obviously they have no no baseline. There's nothing to compare it to. So I'm setting the baseline and then figuring out how to scale from that baseline. And so it's always a very kind of flexible it's a flexible journey, right? Okay, this is what I think we're going to do. Um, and then let's see what happens when we actually go to market. I mean, one of the things that I really like about marketing is that, you know, you're sitting in your office, well, now in your home, but, you know, you're talking to your colleagues and you're like, yeah, this is what our users are doing. And then when you actually go talk to the users or when you send out a survey, you're like, no, they're actually doing this or, you know, they're doing using using a feature in a way that you didn't think they would be or you, or you, you know, be, um, or something that you couldn't predict. So getting back to the back to the uh, question. So I kind of ask these questions more and more because, like I said, the marketing foundation has to support the company um, and help the company, as you said, kind of go from having no brand to having, uh, as Jason calls, um, Jason Limkin calls a mini brand to then obviously having a brand, which, uh, which obviously helps. I think from a programmatic demand gen growth perspective, um, you have to make sure that you have programs that make it easier for your audience to find you, right? A lot of the CEOs that I've worked with have said, hey, what's a silver bullet in marketing? Or, you know, if you had whatever, $2 million or two extra million dollars, like what would you spend it on, right? What's the one channel you'd spend it on? And the reality is, is that there's no silver bullet, right? Just because prospects these days aren't using one channel to learn about you, right? They're, they're, they're talking to their friends. They're going to, for example, to the G2. They are looking at AdWords. Um, they're searching, you know, all kinds of places. They're going to LinkedIn to find out about you. So you have to make sure you have a presence on all of those different channels. Um, you also want to make sure that you are known for something to differentiate your product. You know, for example, um, we're, we're familiar with Gong. Gong is doing very well. And they're known for putting out great, you know, quantifiable content for sales. But that's not all they do from a marketing perspective, right? They still do the AdWords. They still have events. They still have a presence on G2 Crowd. So you really kind of have to be everywhere um, these days. And, and the, the, the issue when you are the first person in marketing is, like I said, you don't really know what the baseline is. So you don't really have a sense of kind of what you need to spend on these different channels. And so you just kind of have to start and then build the baseline and then just kind of go from there. That, that resonates because a few days ago I was talking to um, a CEO where uh, we're consulting, we're helping him out with, with a sales team. And we literally paraphrase, we're like, you gotta do everything, right? That's, that's essentially, and the reason I think sometimes we forget, and one of my favorite um, 
like classes in college. And I, I know going back maybe like 10, 15 years, but one of the things that to this day, I still remember uh, the professor said it takes seven to 10 touches to convert a buyer. Right. And that's why it's so important because every like historically, right. As a salesperson, I, I always used to be like, okay, I want to take the demos that convert quickly because I'm just incentivized that way. Whereas now I'm like, it's actually my job in conjunction with everybody else to educate the customer and to help them go through that evaluation process. And sometimes it takes two years, sometimes it takes two months, but that's, that's where that story of you saying you got to do everything just because you're good at one thing doesn't mean you're not doing everything else uh, is important because those, those multiple touches add up. Uh, I'm going to reverse the question um, in that you have had this really unique experience of um, starting in product support, working for a bunch of different startups, ultimately hitting scale somewhere where you can be really selective at what company you go in at, uh, whether it's as a full-time hire or as a contractor or consultant. When you evaluate these uh, companies, uh, whether it's full-time, preferably full-time, what's the criteria? How are you evaluating them? And the reason I ask that is, at least for me, my experience has changed, like what, that, what the important criteria are over the years. And I'd love to kind of know from your experience, like what's changed and maybe what is, what is that today? Uh, yeah. So the first thing I usually um, think about is the CEO's experience, right? And many of times when you're going into a startup, right, the CEO has a technical background or an engineering background and doesn't really know um, much about marketing. So the first thing I evaluate is like how much education is required to help them understand, you know, that marketing is a discipline and it takes just as much time uh, to uh, build your market and to build your brand as it does to building a product. You know, for example, a lot of these, like I mentioned, the CEOs are, are very technical, they're engineers, and maybe they've been building their product for four or five years before they decide, or they've been, excuse me, they've been in the market for four or five years before they decide to hire marketing. So sometimes they have unrealistic expectations, right? Oh, well, I, it took me four or five years to, to get this this place, and so I want to hire someone in, in marketing, and I want to see results in like the first, you know, quarter or two quarters, right? And that's not that's not how it is. Marketing is just like building product. It, it takes a while. Um, what you want to see in the early days is you do want to see a good baseline and you do want to see some good trends, but it's not like you're going to, you know, you're going to see a hockey stick because you hired someone in marketing in your sales, you know, in a quarter or two quarters, right? It's a discipline that just takes time, just like engineering, um, just like sales, just like any other part of the, of the organization. Um, so I, I look to see kind of what is going to be required to, to help them understand that um, and kind of how open they are going to be to that type of, to that type of education. Um, I also, we talked about this earlier, just in terms of, um, you know, your outlook on the world and having a, a more diverse background. And so I, that's another thing I look at, like, what is the CEO's outlook on the world? Um, you know, just, just around them, because in, in my belief, right, everybody's connected these days. And so if the CEO kind of doesn't have like a global outlook. Um, that's, that's kind of one thing that, that worries me a little bit. And it's not a global outlook in that they want to sell their product globally, but it's just how they kind of think about the world and um, their place in it. I also look at the culture. I mean, and everybody says that, oh, I look at the culture, you know, that's whatever. Um, but in many cases for a startup, right, the CEO sets the culture, whether wittingly or unwittingly, right? And so if they are really, if they're kind of more on the unwittingly side of setting the culture, that's a little bit of a red flag because it is something that I think that, um, that they need to be very serious about. Um, I also look at the exec team. Like how does the, how does the, how does the exec team gel? How do they handle disputes? Um, look, I look at diversity. Recently, I came across a startup where 50% of the employees were women, where I was like, that's great, right? You hardly ever see that. So I think that's great. 
Um, and then finally, I think, can I personally relate to the pain that they're solving, right? Because I kind of have to believe in obviously the mission of the company. And if I have some personal experience with it, I was like, yeah, you know what, this is, this is going to help a lot of people. And so this is going to be uh, this is going to be fun to market, right? At the end of the day, right? I have to, I have to believe in the product, and I have to think, oh, this is going to be a fun, a fun place to stay for a long time to market, and also a fun place to make an impact. Percent. I'd love to double click on to use sort of like a um, corny tech term. Um, I'd love to, I'd love to double click on the relationship with like sales in particular, like maybe thinking about some of the stops along the way. Um, you know, maybe, maybe echo sign, for example, um, you know, had a lot of success there in terms of the sales marketing partnership. I'd love to know too about like what you look for, uh, in building just like a really strong relationship with like a counterpart in sales. You've done it super well, um, multiple times. It doesn't always go well. Uh, if you look at just kind of across the industry, uh, what, what do you think has been, um, the factor in having so much success, like partnering on the sales side, Loretta? Uh, yeah, I mean, you're, you're right. Sales and marketing are basically two sides of the of this coin, right? If your go-to-market team is not in sync, like there's no way you're, you know, your, your company is going to be successful. Um, I think I've been lucky because you're right. It doesn't always go that well. And, and typically, you know, what you see is you see the blame game. Oh, you know, sales isn't following up on our leads. Oh, those sales, those leads from marketing suck, right? That's kind of the typical thing. Um, but I think in many ways I've been lucky because um, to a certain extent, because the people that I've worked with on the sales side have been, you know, what I call quote unquote adults, right? And so we're, we, we realize that we're in this together and we don't want to play the blame game. We want to kind of work together to, um, uh, you know, work together to make this happen. You know, one of the things that, that I've done in the past that's uh, worked really well is um, determine kind of what are the criteria that go to sales in terms of a lead, because all leads, all leads are not created equal. So, for example, we sit down every quarter with this with the sales um, VP and say, okay, this quarter, these are the leads that we think are going to go to sales. Let's say they signed up for a demo. That's great. But if they sign up for a webinar, we found that, you know, those leads maybe need a little bit more um, nurturing. So we're not going to send them if they to sales, if they sign up for a webinar, we're just going to send them to sales if they sign up for a webinar and they download a white paper or they take a demo or something like that. So the, depending on where the leads come from would depend on kind of their quality and when they would go to sales. And that benchmark that you use kind of, you have to be flexible about it. You have to change it. Um, and, and so I've had a lot of success in sales VPs that kind of want to work with me in that, in that regard and kind of make sure that that what is getting into the top of the funnel is quality so that it obviously closes um, more efficiently and, and more effectively. I mean, in an, in an ideal world, right, between sales and marketing, you don't want a funnel. What you want is a shoot, right? You want every single lead that comes through to close, <laughs> well right? Yeah, but, um, you know, but that's, that's, not, that's not happening, but that's kind of the nirvana that you're trying to work for. And so if you have this relationship where you kind of have a lot of give and take, you know, you're, you're going to be closer to a funnel than a shoot. Yeah, ideally, it's like a water slide, or you're just getting faster and faster the more time you're spending on it, right? Right, exactly. Uh, now, I, now I want to go to a water park. Um, <laughs> awesome. Well, listen, Loretta, this has been super fun. I appreciate, um, as always, your perspective and, uh, and I guess, learning more, too, about your background and, and growing up and how that influenced your look on the world and, and some, like, really actionable tips for um, folks that are maybe looking to get into an earlier stage head of marketing or VP of marketing type role and, and some like really good perspective for them to consider. If you were to go back in time as your present self and give advice to, you know, maybe your younger self, what would be the advice you'd give to your younger self? 
Um, I would say kind of, I think anybody um, would be kind of stick to your guns. So from, from a professional perspective, as I think I mentioned before, like marketing is not for the faint of heart because everybody has an opinion. Oh, why didn't we do this? We could have done this, right? Because it's basically, you know, it's a, it's a public facing discipline. So I think what I would have, and so oftentimes when you're younger and a lot of people are coming at you, it makes you kind of, um, it makes you think, oh my God, I didn't do that right. Or, or should, I should have done this, or I should have done that. And it makes you kind of start doubting yourself. Um, so the advice I would give to my younger self is, you know, don't doubt yourself, stick to your guns. If you have um, a good idea, if you have data to back up your idea, kind of stick to your guns and, uh, and just keep moving ahead. I like it. Stick to your guns. Um, awesome. Well, Loretta, thank you. Um, thank you for joining us. If folks want to connect with you um, and, and, and get in touch, one, are you open to that? And two, what would be the best way to get in touch? Oh, sure. Uh, for, of course, I'm open to having um, anybody connect with me. Yeah, just um, uh, message me on LinkedIn. Awesome. Cool. Well, Loretta, thanks again for joining us and uh, hope you have a great, uh, great weekend and just a friendly reminder for everyone to get out and vote. Yep, I agree. Everyone get out and vote. And thank you so much for having me. It was great fun. Appreciate it. Thanks, Loretta. This week's episode is brought to you by Oracle NetSuite. Oracle NetSuite, I think, solves a really important problem that a lot of startups, business owners, executives face, which is how do you get the information that you need instantly all in one place? Before we upgraded the Oracle NetSuite at my last startup, it used to take us a lot of time to pull the information reports that we needed for our quarterly investment meeting or the report that we wanted to send to both internal employees as well as stakeholders and shareholders at the end of the month. Upgrade to Oracle NetSuite today so you can get the visibility and control you need over your financials, HR, inventory, and everything you need in one place that you can access instantly. Let NetSuite show you how they'll benefit your business with a free product tour at netsuite.com scale. Schedule your free product tour right now at netsuite.com scale. That is netsuite.com slash scale.